so Isaiah, the prophet, uh, wrote 66 chapters of the Old Testament. He is one of the major, if not the major prophet. And the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, and it mirrors the whole of Scripture in some ways. And it is the pinnacle of biblical prophecy. Now, uh, we're not going to study all of Isaiah, but we're going to do enough of it to get you a flavor of where we're going. And the context requires that we see the forest for the trees. So this is sort of like trying to take a chomp out of... Hello? I'm, po- I'm pointing at this. Hello? You're using the laser button. Oh, technology. I know. It's, not... right. it's this button right here. That, that one underneath it? Yeah, the one that doesn't have any icon at all on it. Thank you. Yeah. That's the one I was pushing, I thought. Here we go. There. Isaiah is like ta- taking a bite out of Isaiah. is like trying to take a bite out of a 66-layer sandwich. These were not the grossest ones I could find on the Internet. I, I, I edited them. Okay? All right? But, you know, what I'm going to ask you to do, sort of by faith, is unhinge your jaw. You know, like the python or the crocodile. And get ready to chomp down and savor what it is that the Lord has laid out for us in Isaiah. And, um, uh, you know, and we, as we do that, we're going to ask the, the Lord, the Spirit, to give us the eyes and the ears of the Spirit. Because uh, we live in a culture here in the Bay Area that is really not far off in its values from 8th century B.C. Judah. All you have to do is read the media. All you have to do is watch on the street. You go, ah. Okay. Now, now that you're all seated, take somebody's hand. You can stand if you want or you can sit, but take somebody's hand and you're going to pray after me. Here we go. Lord the Spirit, Lord the Spirit. we need your insight. We need your, insight. your discernment as we study passages in Isaiah. We give you permission to penetrate our hearts. With your conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're blessed by the Father. Who foretold the sending of his son Jesus. 700 years before his birth. We would bring the mind of Christ with us into this study. Open our eyes. Open our, eyes. Our, ears, our ears, our hearts, our hearts. in Jesus' name. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So just like a 66-layer sandwich, you, you know, or you eat an elephant, you start on the outside and you work your way in. So we're going to start on the outside. Um, I want to open to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Just ignore what's on that screen. I haven't got a, a blank spot there. Just... I realize some of you are very hungry. Don't <laughs> hang on. Dinner's coming. Okay, chapter one, verse one of Isaiah. In the first four words, we discover who he is and how he's gifted. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So this guy is a seer, prophet. Now there, you know, there are others. You know, who read, they read the scriptures and the scriptures speak to them and they relate that to the culture and God sends a word and they deliver it. This guy, Isaiah, could see and could see in far distance what God was going to do, why he was going to do it. And it rocked him. Okay? In Jewish history, uh, they place Isaiah in the royal household 
of the, in the line of David. Uh, we don't know that from the scriptures, but the Jewish history says he was somehow related. And, uh, you know, he wasn't going to be the king, but he was in the household. <clears throat> uh, nine kings had descended from David by this time. 200 years have passed. Nine kings have descended from him, starting with Solomon, if you will. And when Solomon dies, uh, his son Rehoboam is getting ready to be crowned king, coronated in Shechem. He arrives in Shechem, but he finds there's a, a mob, there's a multitude. There is a delegation of people from the tribes of Israel who've come to address him. This is unprecedented in scripture. Okay? They come and they want to know something from this king that they're going to crown and lead them. Never happened before. Okay? And in that crowd is a man named Jotham. Excuse me, not Jotham. Uh, Jeroboam. Excuse me. In the crowd is Jeroboam. Now, you don't know what happened, so I'm going to read it to you. What happened? Back up. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 26. Okay? Uh, the previous chapter basically says Solomon's foreign women turned his heart away from the Lord. Solomon's in the pit. Started well, finished badly. Okay? And there was rebellion that was starting to happen in the land because of his policies. So in verse 20, 26 it says, Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerada, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was... Get that out of the way. Excuse me. <laughs> she was a widow had also rebelled against the king. Now, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king Solomon, because uh, Solomon built the Milo, which is a tower close enough to breach in the city of his father David. I don't understand that context, but there's, there's a bad smell in the air between these guys, okay? <clears throat> now that the man, Je Jeroboam, was a, a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that he was a young man who was industrious, he was a guy who could get it done. He wasn't just a warrior. He could organize. He could lead. And Solomon handpicks him and appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. See, the way Solomon got things done was he said, this tribe is going to deliver to me X number of thousands of laborers who are going to dig the foundations and lay the... You know. Israel had to do what the king asked. They didn't like it. Okay? And they, he, uh, Solomon appointed Jeroboam over this forced labor. And it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the, Sh uh, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. Prophetic act. Okay? And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon. Woo. Okay? You guys ever heard this before? Okay? And I'm going to give you ten tribes. So here's a man who's in rebellion, and God says, I'm going to give you ten tribes. And he, But I will leave one tribe for Solomon for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have caused, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me, have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, 
and observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. There, nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, which I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son, I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. And I will take you, Jeroboam, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command to you and walk in my ways and do what's right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. And then I will affect, afflict the descendants of David for all of this mess that they are leaving, but not always. And Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam rose and fled to Egypt. So he gets this great prophecy that he's going to end up ruling and leading, and then he has to run for his life. Back to Shechem. Rehoboam, son of, of Solomon, is about to be crowned, and the, and the mob is there, and in the mob... Returning from Egypt is Jeroboam. And what that mob wants to know is, Rehoboam, are you going to lift the load of heavy taxation? You're going to remove the yoke of forced labor. Are you going to force our sons into full-blown military service all the time? Because that's how Solomon built his empire. Okay? He built his wealth and he built his prestige and he built the land by drawing heavily upon the Israelites. And Rehoboam goes, uh, I'll give you, give me three days. I've got to talk to some people. He asks for three days. He gets it. And first thing he does, he goes to Solomon, his father's counselors. So they would have been seniors. They would have been elders. And he says, here's the deal. Now, okay, I think as Rehoboam is walking toward those counselors in his mind, this is, trust me, this is biblical speculation, okay? This is not in the word of God. This is me. I think as Rehoboam walks toward those senior counselors, he's going, less taxes, smaller workforce, smaller army. That means I'm going to be less than my father. I don't want that. Then he arrives at the seniors, and the seniors say, speak softly to these people and lighten their load some, and they will follow you forever. They'll serve you forever. Thank you. Appreciate it. Turns around and kind of goes, less taxes, less workforce, less military. Doesn't solve his problem. They're going to love him, but there's a problem. There's less. Goes next to the, to the young men who are his peers. They, they grew up in the household. They may be even a little bit related. They're brothers, you know, who kind of, you know, they're, they're guys that were with him growing up. And he goes to them. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. You want to be greater than your father. You want to extend the kingdom. You don't want to be a wimp. So what he does, what Rehoboam does, three days later is he takes the counsel of the young men and he amplifies it and he spews it all over this mob of people. And he says, my father struck you with whips. I 
will strike you with scorpions. Get an idea where he's going with change of policy? It's going to get worse. Okay? Immediately, there's a rebellion. Immediately. Ten tribes. Stand up and move. Now, those ten tribes were located primarily to the north of Jerusalem. Their homelands that they got in the wars of Canaan, they were to the north. Okay? But ten of them say, we don't want any part of Judah. We don't want any part of Jerusalem. We're gone. And they depart. They take Jeroboam. They crown him king. As prophesied. They establish a, a new capital, if you will, in Samaria. And then there's a razor in the middle of this. Jeroboam has to decide, am I going to follow the word of the Lord God? Or am I going to go my own way? Remember what he did? He has crafted two golden calves. One he placed in Dan, way up in the shadow of Mount Hermon, almost in Lebanon, at the far north end of Israel, and one at Bethel, just outside Jerusalem, just right there. Because he doesn't want anybody going back to Jerusalem to worship the God Most High. He wants them to stop on the way and worship the golden calf, who he says, look, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Not. Over 200 years before Isaiah steps onto the scene, this, that, you know, that's, that starts this thing rolling. There's a, now a nation in the north called the, the nation of Israel, ten tribes. There's a nation in the south called Judah, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin are radically outgunned. Much smaller tax base, <laughs> much smaller army, much, you know, they just, they're, they're, the, they're not going to cut it on the block. You know, everything to the north is huge, powerful, okay? <clears throat> so 200 years have passed. And of the kings who ruled Israel to the north, all of them were wicked men. All of them led their people in gross idolatry. Of the kings in the south, the kings of Judah, some of them were godly men who started well and finished well. Some of them were godly men who started well and then stumbled and didn't end well. And some of the kings of Judah to the south were wicked from the get-go. Meaning, they, they went up on the, on the high places and they reinstituted the worship of the Canaanite pantheon with ritualized pan, uh, prostitution, with, with child sacrifice. It was awful. Dreadful. And in walks Isaiah, about 740 B.C., just as King Uzziah is beginning to fade away. He started well, got cocky, and the Lord said, you're done. And he gets leprosy, and he proceeds to die in bits and pieces. And at that point, Isaiah is placed into the scene. And with his eyes, with his seer gift, he looks out across Judah, and he sees rebellion against God. He sees unjust and corrupt practices in Judah. He sees empty, ritualistic Worship and sacrifice in Solomon's temple that God won't have anything to do with. God is done with that. And he, with his, with his sight, he can see both present and future devastation to the land of Judah. Now I'm going to walk you pushing, 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 pushing. Hello. 
I'm here. I'm Thank here. you. You need me. I guess. I'm sorry. I thought I'm pushing the right one. You are pushing the right one. It's not. It's actually not working. Oh. Okay. Anyway, I want to walk us quickly through the 66 layer sandwich. That one. Whoop. Back up. Whoop. Nope. Keep going. Well, you went all the way through them. That's what happened. No. All the way to the end. There. That one. Okay. This is the timeline on the left. You can see it. Doesn't matter for much. But it just gives you a sense of the flow here. And I want to just comment on this. But I want to start in Isaiah chapter 1. And I want to uh, see where God says Isaiah is supposed to start. Okay? Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Okay? 16, 17 says, this is, the, this is God speaking. And actually, you need to recognize Isaiah is very different from other parts of Scripture because this isn't the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord, God is really upset. This is God saying, I'm upset. He is the speaker through a vast portion of the book of Isaiah. Okay? He's speaking here. He says, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Okay? Tells them what to stop doing. And then he says, here's what you do. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's an exhortation to change, and then, bang, God offers a way back. Here's, here's a way out. Bow the knee, bow the heart, come back. And what does, what does Judah do? Nah, not, they're, not, they're not listening. Okay? Next, Isaiah chapter 6. These, these chapters are often, uh, are often read at Christmas time or in other, other times. Okay? But in Isaiah 6, I, King Uzziah has died. Isaiah is in the temple, and God, on the throne, surrounded by fire and flame, is shaking the very foundation of, of Solomon's temple. Every time the Holy One it touches the natural world, it shakes, it flames, it burns up, and Isaiah is terrified. And he's also deeply convicted of his own sin, because what comes out of his mouth is, is I I'm a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a, a people with unclean lips. And what, what happens? The winged living creature ministering beside God the Father goes to the, the altar, takes a live coal, and takes it and touches Isaiah's lips. Now, whether that's in the natural or in the supernatural, we don't know. A live coal on the lips would blow up your face. Okay? It's supernatural. It blows up his heart. Okay? And then God says, I forgive you. I forgive you. All right? And he's commissioned. Okay? Isaiah 7. Isaiah prophesies of Emmanuel. Remember? Emmanuel. God with us. And there's a, there's a child to be born as a sign to King Ahaz, who's standing there shaking in his sandals because there's two nations immediately to the north of him that has him terrified. They're going to come and and knock down Jerusalem. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, there's a child who's going to be born. And that's a sign to you that those nations you fear 
are going to be devastated. You have nothing to fear. God's in charge. Isaiah 9. Isaiah prophesies to, of a child born that will reign and govern over us. Again, Christmas fair. Okay? Isaiah 10. Isaiah prophesies of God's judgment on Assyria. You kind of go, whoop, okay, that's, that's new news right there, but we'll get to that. All right? Isaiah prophesies of the rise of life from the root of Jesse, from the dead house of, of David, from, from descended from Jesse. There's going to be new life that's going to spring forth. Isaiah 13 to 24. Isaiah describes an oracle or a burden or an extended continuous vision that came to him where he saw concerning Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Tyre. And then he turns and, and, and the prophecy is that God's going to destroy the nations. Jerusalem is the bullseye. Everything surrounding that's threatening Jerusalem is going to get destroyed. Isaiah 25 to 27, he breaks into song. He breaks into praise. He's it's like, God, that's amazing what you're going to do. And then he warns Judah and Jerusalem that, whoa, guys, hey, you know, th there's some contingencies here. You have to obey him. Isaiah 32, Isaiah prophesies a king is coming who will reign righteously. Isaiah 33 and 34, Isaiah's prophecies of God's judgment. Isaiah 35, the joyful will flourish in Zion. That's got to be in the future because it's not happening when Isaiah is alive. Okay? Isaiah 40 to 66, Isaiah prophesies of captivity and restoration. Okay, what's the critical word in all that list? The recurrent critical word. Isaiah, yes. <laughs> Got it. And right behind, prophesy. prophecy. Okay. All right. That critical word is seen over and over again in the list. That concept that God Almighty has the power to interact with history through his prophets was not acceptable to the historical, critical, rational, theological scholars of the late 1800s in Europe. Up to that time, everybody went, Sure, we'll go with Isaiah as written. Not a problem. But we hit this block where people were saying, God isn't really God. He doesn't really do that stuff. He loves everybody. You know, they, basically, they get into it starting about 1780. 1783, Johann Eichhorn posited that Isaiah 40 to 52, down here, 40 to 52, starting there at the bottom, down, he says 40 to 52 had to be written by an exile, by someone who'd been taken in captivity to Babylon, and he's reading history backwards. He's writing anonymously about all the stuff that's fallen upon them. So it could not possibly have been that God told Isaiah what was going to happen going looking forward. Six years later, Johann Doderlein posited that there was an anonymous writer of Isaiah for all chapters 40 to 66. They just pick up and, and tear up the book of Isaiah and say, God couldn't have done that. You know, it has to be read backwards. It has to be on a human basis. Can I have a, qu I have a question about that? Is yeah. That, is that because they thought it was, it was too accurate that, that um, no one could have known that? Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And, and the God that they believed in didn't do stuff like that. 
So they're reading back out of this into who God is. They're rearranging his character. All right. A hundred years later, Bernard Doom wrote in 1892 a presentation for four things. He takes the servant psalms out of Isaiah and he just removes them because they deal with the Jewish Messiah. That's, that. we're not interested in that. And then second, you know, uh, the person, there's, there's got to be a, uh, an answer for all these uh, polemics, this hard language against idolaters and judgment against idolaters. God wouldn't do that. So he, he tears out all the passages that deal with the charge that God has against those that refuse to worship him and choose rather to worship idols. That gets tossed out. Third, uh, Bernard Doom names this, this anonymous writer of chapters 40 to 55, and he coins the name Deutero-Isaiah. All you have to do is go to the, the internet today. There it is, Deutero-Isaiah. There's just tons of stuff if you want to follow that track. And lastly, he said, oh, oh, and by the way, that was just 40 to 55. There's a third writer, anonymous writer called Trito-Isaiah, who, who comes along. He obviously had to be in the exile as well, and he reads it backwards. And so there's at least three authors. Okay? <clears throat> God could not possibly prophesy with accuracy across centuries. God would not judge idol worshipers. After all, they didn't know him. Why would he judge them? God could not speak his heart to one author of Isaiah over 55 years to clearly warn of his judgments. So they basically picked that all up and just pitched it out of the scriptures. And those false statements have turned into a theological squabble that is with us today. Anytime you want to go study Isaiah, there it is. Still with us. Okay, so you've got, you got a problem here. The core problem in studying Isaiah is whether to believe the record of prophecy or to disregard it. Explaining the writings as coming from events that happened, read backwards. Um, and then possibly, what, why would God judge idolaters? I mean, seriously, that's, you know, that's not nice. So you've got two options. That option A, it's over here. Option A is God, who's speaking through multiple authors to write Isaiah, disregards his former prophecies, sort of steps on himself, kind of cancels what he said before, and... Um, he sort of drops his former anger against Israel and Judah for their infidelity and their idolatrous practices. That's option A. Option B is over here. Option B says God is showing and speaking through one man for 55 years, prophesying the events in near time and in thousands of year time, especially regarding the coming of the promised Messiah through the Jews and that he will be a future one to reign and rule. God is going to bring judgment on the way. God alone is God. So orthodox evangelical scholars, teachers, theologians, we're over here. I'm one of them. Okay? I'm not over there. Now, what was that? And I want, I want you to see it's dead, right? Is it dead? I wanted you to see that, that the picture. This is, this is kind of what Isaiah did. You can spot this, okay? He starts with near term. You know, he says, oh, this, this uh, virgin's going to conceive, and that's going to be a sign to you, to Ahaz. But then he's looking through captivity and destruction and restoration and Jesus coming as Messiah. And there's a whole bunch of stuff here that he saw hadn't happened yet. He sees the top of prophetic things. But down here at the bottom, 
This is where life gets lived. Okay? Now, what's the geopolitical reality? Um, we need those maps. Thank you. The, the reality is... One more. Right there. Israel is to the north. Remember? Ten tribes. Judah and Benjamin are to the south. Two tribes. They don't like each other. Judah has been uh, savaged by the northern tribes. They overran it. They stole the crops. They burnt stuff down. They never captured Jerusalem. Okay? But they're not, you know, they're not being treated, they're not treating their brothers well. Okay? But you can see the land mass. This, this covers ten tribes, and this is just desert and a couple of small tribes. Next map, please. Okay, this is what's happening around the bullseye right here in Jerusalem. Down here on the Nile River, rising is Egypt. And Egypt wants, with its, with, with its allies, they want to control trade routes through the Levant, through this whole region. They want to control it, they want to tax it, and they want to set military outposts all over the place. Okay? Directly to the north, you've got Damascus. The Syrians want a piece of Jerusalem. And they're, gonna, they're willing to, to sell themselves as, to uh, other, other people to come and fight against Jerusalem. Further to the north, up here, you've got in this region right here, you've got Assyria, headwaters of the, of the uh, Euphrates River up north. And at the time of Isaiah's life, it is going to be led by a man named Tiglath-Pileser. And he starts in 744 B.C., and he is the first of four emperor-type, king-type, political, shrewd political leaders with powerful military technology, new technologies, and, and they come repeatedly to try and take out Israel and Jerusalem. Ultimately, it is Assyria that wipes the kingdom of Israel off the map. All ten tribes are taken in captivity, and they're transported. They're gathered up, dragnet, gathered up, and all ten tribes go here, and they disappear into the nations. Those ten tribes to the north, they're gone. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. Okay? Now, in response to all that, I said, here's Isaiah who gets himself commissioned by God himself in the temple. <clears throat> now, Isaiah is not a politician. He's not a ruler. He's not a careerist prophet. He's now God's man because his lips were touched and God said to him, you go out and you proclaim what I'm going to do. Now, Isaiah sees the devastation that's about to come to pass on Israel and then on Judah, and God instructs him to say, you're going to teach them, you're going to speak to them, you're going to prophesy to them, to ears that will not hear, to eyes that will not see, to hearts and minds that will not understand. That's a tough assignment. Got children sometimes like that. Um, but I, I want you to get a taste of what that might feel like. Okay? I was in Ethiopia 15 years ago with an international evangelist, a, prophet, a healing evangelist, um, and uh, there's a cloud of red dust because people are dancing and praising and there's miracles happening. Um, and um, I, I had another guy got invited to the back of the platform to stand there and bear testimony of what was going on. And I'm standing in the back, and you can see the crowd out front, and it's parting. And this guy is walking through. He's dressed in black. 
very unusual for Ethiopians. They are colorful people. He's dressed in black, and he's coming to the stage with his hand over an eye. And it isn't until he gets to the stage that you realize he's covering the good eye. Because 35 years before, his left eye had been utterly destroyed by smallpox. That disease just ate it and left a black smoking hole in his head. And so for 35 years, he's been blind in one eye. But in that meeting, God began to have light flashes and gray and white and black and color and shape and form, and then he saw Now, the eyeball was not completely formed, but it was coming. It was a creative miracle that God was doing in that man for everybody to hear and see and bear testimony to it. I come back to America, fly home, and I'm with people of faith here in the Bay Area, and I tell that story. I was on a platform. I saw this man coming, hand over the good eye. God did a creative miracle on that stage that a man with no eye suddenly could see, and their response almost uniformly, was something like, you know the Giants had a terrible year last year. They didn't even make the playoffs. And my heart just goes, oh, okay. See, that's what's going on day to day, moment by moment for Isaiah. He proclaims, he gives testimony. He says, look, I can show you. Eyes will not hear. Eyes, eyes, will, not, uh, eyes will not see. Ears will not the other way around, yes. <laughs> and hearts and minds will not understand. Okay? Now, I want to give you a taste of the 66-layer sandwich because you're going to run into a habanero pepper here. Okay? You're, you're chomping your way through. This is, this is too much information. That's fine. This is going to wake you up. All right? Isaiah 44. Okay? In Isaiah 44... Isaiah and the Lord have been railing on and unraveling idolatry, the folly of idolatry. And suddenly, in Isaiah 44, there's a turn, there's a shift. Verse 21, the Lord starts speaking firsthand. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Small s here, okay. Um, I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not... Be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Woo. You know, he's already said judgment's coming, but now he's proclaiming their forgiveness is coming as well. Restoration's coming as well. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest, every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant, and performing the purpose of his messenger, it is I who say to Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. Well, they're standing that day. They're, they're built that day. But he's speaking of what is about to happen and what will happen after desolation. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. And it is I who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform my desire. 
He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple and your foundation will be laid. And you go, Cyrus, never before mentioned in scripture. Who? Okay. Cyrus will be born in 111 years after this is proclaimed. About 600 BC. He will be born in the southern region down here. Way down. Way down here. Okay. Babylon was a non-entity. You know, this was, this was, nothing was happening at the time of, of uh, Isaiah. It was all up north. Assyria was the power. Egypt was the power. Nothing here yet. In 150 years, Cyrus rises, and he establishes the Archimedes dynasty. And he, he is described here, okay, as my shepherd, who will perform all my desire. You know what he does? He and his hordes take everything from the Mediterranean to the Indus River over here. Everything from the Black Sea to the Persian Gulf. It's the largest empire yet on earth. Okay, Keep reading. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before him and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that I may know, that, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by, by your name, and I give you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know that from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord, who does all these things. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness, that the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created. So as I did some study on Cyrus, he's called Cyrus the Great. He whooped them all. He ultimately died in battle, but he had an amazing run of, of, of years as the emperor over the region. And it is his word, his edict, that sends back to Jerusalem the remnant from Judah to rebuild the city, to relay the foundations for the temple, and to be restored. Okay? As I read about Cyrus, it is noted that Cyrus never was known to worship any idol, either in his own Babylonian homeland, of the dynasty, of any of the gods that were conquered here, any of the, any of the, of the uh, idols. He worshipped none of it, which is extraordinary because every other emperor ever worshipped them all or had a patron god that took care of him, had his back. Okay? And I, I, I have some biblical speculation, Okay? I believe that he had his own encounter with God. Uh, and it was the God of Israel and, and, and 
God made himself known to Cyrus and walked him through life wide-eyed as the creator God opened doors for him to reign and rule. And I wouldn't be shocked if Cyrus was in heaven. Didn't mean he didn't do bad stuff, okay? But I'm just speculating, okay? So God here is establishing his rock-certain sovereignty. Now, if you lay awake at night and there's fears and there's worries, then you, the question is, is this God able to address them and see them resolved? Okay? If you struggle with your future, what do I do with my life? What do I do with this relationship? I don't have a relationship. I wish I didn't have a relationship. Is God well and truly able to walk you down that path to your destiny? Because he keeps proving that he can do that even with pagan leaders. So forth, family. We've plunged into this kind of overview of Isaiah 2,700 years ago. Now, one of my mentors sends out every week a reflection, maybe two, three times a week, and it's usually larded with pointed poetry and quotes from the saints of old. Uh, this week he sent a reflection that, the, that the, uh, the Lord God, Father God, Yahweh, keeps calling out to his sons and daughters and to the lost, to the broken ones. And the message is the same. Return to me. Confess. Agree that you're wrong. Repent and come and follow me. In the San Francisco Bay Area, we got what? Seven million? Okay. There are millions of people living in the Bay Area that, that understand a little, that have some inkling of the, the freedom that's available in Christ. But they've chosen in their stubbornness and their ignorance and their rebellion to get away from God. They value their moral position. They value their personal control more than grace, more than forgiveness, more than having a relationship with the living God. Yet. Because I think God's going to shake that loose. Okay? Likewise, in the Bay Area, there's a few hundred thousand folks who started toward Jesus, started toward a relationship with God, but they got hijacked. And they got hijacked by people who tore apart the scriptures and made it less believable and less, con you know, it just didn't flow anymore because it had been chopped into hash. And it got replaced by social justice issues and humanistic values. And then lastly, here in the greater Bay Area, there's a large kind of double handful of, of gatherings who have confessed and repented and moved with intention to follow God, a God alone, to obey Him. But the edge of obedience has been blunted by the cares of life and the sense of isolation from unbelievers. They have great worship, good Bible teaching, live fellowship, but almost no new converts, no baptisms are happening. And they can grow comfortable with that. So here today, Isaiah has a word for me. Okay? I put myself in part of my craft. Okay? There's a word for me. And, and for us, all of us, wherever you are, Isaiah saw and heard God speaking 
challenging, warning, reaching out, promising that after all is said and done, he is in charge. And he alone is to be worshipped and obeyed. So Forge family, like I said, we're going to be studying the four servant songs of Isaiah to hear what God has to say about himself and about his servant, the promised one, the righteous one, the anointed one, this Jesus who was born 700 years after it was prophesied. He came as promised. And he's coming back as was prophesied. Just as God promised. So let's pray. Father God, we so need to be confronted with your character, your ways, and your love. We don't understand your plans, Lord. We don't understand your timing, but you never fail. Come lift and shake us, Lord. Get us ready to obey and to serve. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.